The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. Lord, we heard the testimony of the psalmist. We, we think about the nature of Psalm 119 and how comprehensive it is in giving attention to the scriptures, the word of God, the law of God, the testimonies, precepts, so many precious expressions of what you've chosen to reveal to us that we would know you and your desire for this creation and specifically your people, that you've made it clear when you've called us to lives of holiness and faithfulness what that looks like and how we can put the principles to action and how we can um, be diligent about these things. And that's the very path that we want to walk down, even as the psalmist expressed and, and forms and both uh, poetry and prayer, that we want to walk in your ways. Uh, we want to pursue your law, your word, with all of our hearts. And that's uh, an appetite and a, a desire that you provide, and we pray that uh, it would be strengthened in and amongst our fellowship, that we would have a, a vigorous desire for your word, and in desiring it, that we would seek to, to put it to action, to seek to put it um, on display through our lives not to um, demonstrate our understanding or satisfaction or even application of it, but to, to magnify Christ and to demonstrate your work through us. And we thank you that to that end we've been able to gather, and to that end we're able to, even as we go our separate ways, to, to pray and to study, to read, to think, to, to sing, but we can accomplish that in a, a precious and a unique way in our assembling, and that's the nature of your church. It's a people that assemble, that come together for these reasons, and we, we thank you that you've uh, provided that gift to us. We thank you also for your larger church. And week in and week out, we are praying for your church throughout the world, and often it's um, through just information that's able to be gleaned and gathered, and sometimes there's a measure of experience or point of reference. Perhaps somebody's visited, somebody is familiar with um, uh, a training institution, somebody knows somebody that knows somebody that has been there or is from there. And so we rejoice in those special occasions in which we get to pray for your church and have faces and names that are dear to us, uh, that um, perhaps we've known more fully or sometimes just in passing, but it's a gift that you uh, generously provide. We think about the letters, uh, so many of the epistles close with personal greetings, and uh, we're, we're grateful that um, there's faces and names uh, as we pray for South Africa, and we, we thank you for the Venters and their faithfulness in serving um, you there, and not in some novel fashion. It's home. It's, it's where you've providentially placed them and their families, and we thank you for that and pray that you would strengthen and encourage them, that you would find them faithful, that uh, the church would be resilient, confident in you, loving your word, loving one another, declaring your excellencies, um, seeking to ap apply truth with wisdom and the nuances of this complicated and sometimes confusing life. And so we thank you for that and do pray that, again, you continue to strengthen them, strengthen this church, strengthen the churches around us. Um, we thank you that uh, it's in some ways uh, peculiar in terms of culture and context and history that most of us are passing many churches on our way here or familiar with or see other churches. I do pray that um, 
they, they who name Christ would be found faithful, um, and that those who um, name Christ but don't seek a faithfulness, uh, that you would uh, bring either repentance or that uh, you would redirect your, your true people. But we thank you for a context in which there's an abundance of opportunity. Uh, may we be found faithful within that, uh, faithful in our own lives, faithful in the testimony that goes forth from here. Lord, we thank you for the letters that Peter wrote as well. Um, they are such a, a precious exhortation to, to your people. I uh, think about the work that we did in First Peter for an extended period of time, and there's so much that's said about suffering and future glory, and it shapes our thoughts and our understanding of this world and the, the challenges that it, it proposes to those who would be, seek to be faithful. And then coming into Second Peter, um, again, esteeming and uh, securing our identity as being in Christ and the, the engagement of your people as beloved, and, but then engaging some very, very uh, ugly um, opponents to your church, those who are false teachers, those who are mockers. Um, those things, they wound, they hurt, they confuse. Uh, so we, we thank you that you've given us clarity. We thank you that that clarity, again, we see it in the Psalms. We've seen it in all of our various studies, but it's so very plain at different times. Peter just continues to direct us to center and to get our bearings from the scriptures. And so we thank you for that. Help us as we now advance toward the end of the second letter and the end of uh, toward the end of chapter three here um, to approach it with a humility and um, an openness to hear and to receive and to be impacted. Um, we think about Peter even speaking about the day of the Lord, and that it's a weighty subject. It's a one that it should burden and bother us and encourage us all altogether. Um, the fact that uh, Peter has reminded us repeatedly that how we live and how we think should be framed by the the fact that there is a righteous judge who will call all men to account, and that's so radically put on display in the great day of the Lord. And so uh, we are anticipating that, and we also feel the the impact of that um, by those who we are in our spheres of influence, those who we love. So may we be um, moved as you would have intended us to be moved. Um, help me to communicate that with clarity. I thank you that Peter was clear. I thank you that he wasn't just some um, stoic, cold teacher, but very much a pastor and his uh, apostleship and addressing your people again with such a tender affection time and time again here in these last sections regarding them as beloved. Don't forget, remember these things. He he felt a burden. So help us to to join him in that and to, to be transformed by your word accordingly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to be returning to our work in 2 Peter 3 this morning. I know we've had a bit of... Um, a time away, so we had our, our Christmas season, some special emphasis from Isaiah, we had a, a special charge from the, the Gospel of John, and then we uh, kind of laid a foundation early in the year with Psalm 1, but now we're back to Second Peter, and as we um, begin our time in Second Peter, I'm actually going to take a glance back to some of our recent um, studies, our recent engagement, um, not only with First or Second Peter, but specifically to our work in the Psalms. Uh, so with this, I'd like to begin our time by reading Psalm 1 together. And the psalmist writes as follows, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. 
but his delight is in the law of Yahweh. And in his law, he meditates day and night. And he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not rise in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So two weeks ago, um, we worked through Psalm 1 together. And as, we, uh, as, a, as a way of to establish, again, uh, how we're going to center ourselves, what is going to be our bearings as we enter a new year. Now we're a few weeks into it, but it was a way of establishing our approach to this new year. And in that time, we discussed the two paths that the psalmist lays out for us here, the path of the righteous, which had its centering and source in God's word expressed in the psalm as the law of Yahweh. With this, we noted that it was in Yahweh's law that the blessed man found his great delight, and that in his law he meditates day and night. For the blessed man, Yahweh's law was an all-consuming passion that informed the whole of his life, his walk, his worship, and therefore his path, a path that was stated to be blessed, a blessed one in which he would find generous prosperity from God. And we observed that part of his identity was expressed by what he was not. He was not one who took heed to the counsel or instruction or apparent wisdom of the wicked, those whose concepts of truth and life and salvation and worship and joy were informed by any range of things, but to the exclusion of God's word and were therefore at their heart carnal. We also observed that the blessed man also did not associate or identify in any meaningful way with sinners or those whose life and patterns were marked by rebellious conduct toward God those whose lives were the antithesis to holiness. And as the picture of the wicked digressed from walking to standing and finally to sitting, we saw that the righteous man had no identification with the end of this chain of offenses, namely that of mocking or making light or derision of that which is glorious, that which is good, that which is holy. So again, the righteous or the blessed man was one whose path plainly diverged from the ways of the wicked, ways of the wicked, and was itself centered on God's word. And in contrast to this, righteous and blessed path was the way of the wicked. And we noted that his identity was most strikingly formed by his utter absence, the identity of the wicked, their identity was formed by the utter absence or disconnect from the law of Yahweh or the word of God. That was a major part of our conclusion about the identity of the wicked. But as, we as I've continued to labor through that and thinking about 2 Peter, I think perhaps it was not as disconnected as it had seemed to us at that time. Perhaps he provided an imposing mirror to the righteous or blessed man in ways more than just in what we first observed. Perhaps the, the contrast was not only matters of illustration, association, and outcomes, but also in his clear relationship to the law of Yahweh. He also had a very clear relationship to the law of Yahweh or the word of God expressed within, within this uh, implicit identity as a scoffer or a mocker. Because while it's true, people can scoff or mock at any number of things. And sometimes people do this lighthearted jesting with one team or another or uh, ways of work and whatnot. There's a number of things people can scoff at and mock and be silly about. But here the contrast between the scoffer or mocker is with the righteous man whose identity is centered on Yahweh's law. 
And further, this mocking comes at the conclusion of the digressive disassociation of the righteous man from the wicked, and this digression has the natural conclusion of a mind that has rooted itself in untruths, walked in their perverse ways, and now would belittle or undermine any effort to correct or restore their path. In other words, I would argue that the conclusion of the digression of the wicked in Psalm 1 is their mocking of Yahweh's law be it direct and overt or indirect and concealed more carefully. A conclusion that continues to bear itself out most naturally when we also observe that the wicked will have no standing in the judgment and that their way will conclude with perishing. Now, two more matters from Psalm 1 and then we'll continue our work in Second Peter. First, I tried to make it plain, even if briefly, from the outworking of the righteous man's blessing and prosperity, uh, the fact that he will enjoy blessing, he will enjoy prosperity, but that's not always readily apparent. O- often it finds complex expre- expressions. It's not that, um, that we demand, where's the blessing and where's the expression of Yahweh's prospering him? Sometimes it wasn't so clear. And I think that's no small part of what we see in the remaining elements of the Psalter or the Psalms is that it demonstrates a range of Yahweh's blessing and Yahweh's prosperity through a lot of pain and struggle, confusion, prayer, and just walking faithfully. And so we see that also as we continue to work our way through the scriptures, and that's plainly, I would argue, developed in 1 Peter, where we learn that present and temporal suffering will ultimately yield to eternal glory for those of us who are in Christ. Those of us who have rooted ourselves in Yahweh and his law and his word are blessed and prosper, but it doesn't always look that way. Sometimes it looks like terrible, terrible struggle and suffering and pain, but that will yield to eternal glory. Second, when we walk through Psalm 1, I tried my best to provoke you to be all the more ambitious and eager to drive your roots that much more deeply into God's word, bringing us to join the company of the many Psalm 1 men and women who've preceded us, and who could testify, as we'll see in Psalm 119, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Now, again, we're in 2 Peter, but there's something to be said to our connection to Psalm 1. So hold all these things in mind as we will give our attention back to 2 Peter in just a moment. And consider Peter's own extolling of the word of God. We, we, you remember that, right? Before he engaged the false teachers, what does he do? He lays that foundation the scriptures. Before he engages the mockers, what does he do? Lays that foundation of the scriptures. Also, we're going to consider some of the fact of the nature of the mockers mocking. We're addressing mockers, but in what, what's the context and content of their mocking? Well, we've, we've worked through that. It's where's the promise of his coming? Nothing has changed. And the outcome of the path of the righteous, which we're going to see is a blessed condition. Peter speaks of that. And the outcome of the path of the wicked, which is that of what? Perishing. And that's a lot of emphasis that Peter gives in 2 Peter chapter 3, a lot of emphasis on destruction, suffering, and perishing for the wicked, otherwise here known as the mockers. So keep that in mind. Keep in mind the word of God, the blessing of the righteous, and the perishing of the wicked, and specifically the mocker. As we now read 2 Peter chapter 3, we're going to read um, 1 through 13. I'm going to break it up 1 to 7, then 8 to 13 here on our slides. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. 
He writes, this is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you, which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Knowing this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, and saying, Where's the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being deluged with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some consider slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance." But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be found out. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for, excuse me, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens burning will be destroyed and the elements will be, will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, again, I kind of primed you, I tried to prepare you, but I hope some of the elements that we have reminded ourselves of from Psalm 1, they're coming to mind as we read 2 Peter 3, 1-13, particularly as Peter speaks quite plainly to a range of matters, such as the testimony of the scriptures and the historic outworking of God's plan, but perhaps most clearly in his speaking to judgment and destruction, or as the psalmist might say, again, perishing, the outcome of the wicked. But with this, we must recognize that Peter was not just putting his, his pen to paper and, and thundering judgments against the ungodly. Now, Peter, we know um, from our walking with him in the Gospels and some other just, uh, just walking with him through Acts and other experiences that we have recorded in the Scriptures, that he can be a, a, quite a man of passion and drive. And I could easily see somebody that's offending Christ's church and just, that's it, their destruction, perishing. But he's not just pushing the, the quill down into the, the, the papyrus or the paper or whatever. He's not just thundering judgments against the ungodly. What is he doing? He's writing to believers. He's writing to Christians who shared a like faith to his own. And he does this with an increasingly pastoral tone and measure of endearment. Remember, he knows that not only is Christ's return imminent at any moment, but perhaps even more imminent is his own departure. From this natural life, he knows he's soon to be taken from this natural life. He knows that's, that's actually an imminent reality for him. So he wrote with the burden to stir these believers up, to remind them of truths that they had held fast to so that they might continue to recall them to mind after he is gone, that they should remember. And he again, and now repeatedly refers to them as beloved. Again, he's not just thundering against the wicked. There might be a place for that. I'm not dismissing that. But he's writing to Christ's church, to those whom he has an affectionate relationship and care for. And certainly they were not only beloved to him, but beloved to Christ as well. And we need to hear that, 
the weight, as it were, and affection of tone as he engages these believers on the surety, the impact, and outcome of Christ's return. That sets the tone for us. It's not Christ is coming back and you're going to get yours. It's beloved. Our Lord's returning just as he said he would. And there's been mockers and there's been those who have distorted the, the truths and testimonies of Scripture, but you need to hear and understand this. And this is how we're going to engage it. So it's a subject that is both glorious and terrifying. Glorious for those of us who are in Christ, as this will be a day of great anticipation, reward, and ultimately joy. And we sing about it, right? We sing about this quite frequently. We pray about it. We think about it, I hope. But for the unbeliever, those who are outside of Christ, this is terrifying, as it will be the darkest, most violent, and terrible days in the history of creation. You can look back on history and see some very, very dark moments and times and think, wow, I can't believe people were that bad. There's a day in which things will be so much more terrible, but not just because people and their own sin, but because their holy and righteous judge is calling men to an account in a most violent and extraordinary of ways. This will be terrible days, the worst in the history of creation. So while these matters should and must drive us to a, a righteous expectancy, and with that holy living, it should also produce in us a, a weight or burden for those who are outside of Christ. So it's glorious and terrifying. And we need to be mindful that for the generation that experiences the events of the day of the Lord, it will be horrific. But its end will be no less terrible for every man and woman who is not submitted to Christ in faith and repentance, as it will end with their final judgment and eternal perishing as well. So how have we come to this subject of destruction and perishing and judgment? Is it so that we can have a, a nice little tie-in with the conclusion of Psalm 1? So Psalm 1 was the last message and it ends with the way of the wicked will perish and now we're back in Second Peter, let's have a nice little tie-in for continuity's sake? No. Though I do want to draw some from Psalm 1 at different points of connection. Rather, we're here, though, because this is where Peter has brought us. Again, writing to Christ's church, writing to those whom he know he will soon be departing from, writing to those who share a like faith and whom he regards as beloved. This is why we're here. This is where his letter has taken us. And as you recall, after establishing a foundation in his engaging in believers in chapter one. He provides that foundation of our identity again. He establishes a, a sure hope and encouragement in chapter one. He's writing so as to, again, stir them up by way of reminder. That's a major point of emphasis in the, the beginning of the letter. It returns to here where we saw in chapter three, stirring them up by way of reminder, giving special attention to the strengthening of their faith and the benefits that strengthening their faith yields for them. And then Peter did what? Turned his attention to the authority of the apostolic witness and the prophetic word, laying, as we've mentioned, the foundation with the spirit-inspired scriptures before engaging the false teachers in chapter 2. These false teachers who've been identified as the contemporary counterpart to the historic false prophets. And with providing only a brief introduction to these offenders, Peter establishes their sure and just judgment he expresses that by saying, look, we have some historical precedent to the nature of how they will be held to an account. He demonstrated that through the examples of the, the uniquely perverse angels of Noah's time that were judged by God and, and are now condemned and bound for this time. The generation that succumbed to the worldwide flood. This is expressions of God's judgment. And then he also cited the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Following this, after addressing these false teachers and providing rather a, a biting indictment against them, um, for their disdainful abuse of God's word and their gross assaults on the members of Christ's church, 
Then we go on to chapter 3, and what we see in chapter 3, his direct atten- he directs his attention to the mockers, where he again establishes the authority of the scriptures and draws upon them in his correcting and rebuking of this company who have made little, that's mocking, they're making little of Christ's return and its accompanying judgment of the wicked. And it's in this larger engagement with the mockers that we have what, prov- uh, what proved to be a catalyst to a well-established theme of the prophets and a matter of no small attention by the apostles, namely the day of the Lord, a subject that merits significant attention, but for our purposes will be addressed only enough to establish its relationship to this passage. And that's a decision that's of a like treatment to Peter's own engagement of this large and weighty subject. Um, He gives his attention, which is rather broad and sweeping, addressing really over a thousand years and innumerable details in a matter of a few sentences. And so we're going to give it a Uh, a point of relationship addressment, and then we're going to develop on it and continue on from there. So what is the day of the Lord? Well, to begin with, it is not a day, um, but a period of time and events. Now, that might sound confusing, especially because several weeks ago, we labored through the fact that when Peter uses the term day in chapter 3, verse 8, and now we're in chapter 3, verse 10, He used it differently. He was expressing a literal 24-hour day in verse 8. But now we're saying that in verse 10 that the term day is expressing something else. And that's true because Peter's using the same term in a different way. And this is something that's not especially unusual. So it's not like, wait a second, we're trying to bend things around to, to fit our theological mold. That is always a danger, and we're going to have to fight not only ourselves. Uh, we don't need to worry about other people doing it so much as let's self-examine. Are we doing that? I don't think we are. So let's give, let me give you an example of how we can understand this, uh, using the term day in similar ways, and excuse me, in different ways in the same context. So the context in this particular example, and you'll have to forgive me, Isaiah, but you came to mind with my illustration here. So you, Isaiah has challenged me to a foot race. And so, in view of that, I might respond in the following way. I might not catch you today, but back in the day, I was pretty fast. And there will may be a day that I will yet outrun you. It's not just an illustration. It is a statement of fact. So, for good measure, I snuck in three days in there for you. Um, today being a point in time expressed by a 24-hour cycle. Today, I might not run you. This day, I might not. The day, a period of time which included several days or a season of time. It wasn't like, well, I was fast that day. No, there there was a season of time that, yes, I was faster. And then a day, an anticipated time, which is likely to also include several days, especially as we note the context. The context is my outrunning Isaiah. So that'd be an extended period of time. So you have different uses of the same term, the same context, but used in a different expression. And so it is with the day of the Lord. Peter is referencing a well-established period of time that includes more than a singular 24-hour period, a season of time that was addressed multiple times in the Old Testament by the title, the day of Yahweh, as well as many synonymous references as well. That, that's part of why this study can be quite complex. If you're just saying, ah, the day of the Lord, let me look that up in the Old Testament. Well, there's also the day, and there's other references. You have to pay careful con, uh, con, um, attention to the context and how words are used, because it's more than just that one title, but that one title does help us. 
So with this in view, I'd like to read a number of these passages so that you can develop a thematic feel for what Peter was not only drawing from by way of general allusion to God's judgment, but to what he had precisely in mind when speaking to the day of the Lord. He wasn't saying, well, this would be like a day of the Lord or like the day of the Lord. He's saying the day of the Lord is coming. So what is he talking about? Well, let's look at some of these uh, treatments of this matter in the scriptures to establish a context for us. Again, it won't be exhaustive, but I think it will establish a clear tone for us. Begin with Isaiah chapter 10, verses 6 to 9. Wail, for the day of Yahweh is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will fall limp and every man's heart will melt. They will be terrified. Pains and labor pangs will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment, their faces aflame. Behold, the day of Yahweh is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. Ezekiel 30, 1-4, The word of Yahweh came to me, saying, Son of man, Prophesy and say, Thus says Lord Yahweh, Wail, alas, for the day. For the day is near, even the day of Yahweh is near. It will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. A sword will come upon Egypt, and anguish will be in Ethiopia. When the slain fall in Egypt, they will take away her multitude, and her foundations are pulled down. Joel 1 to 15. And Joel's going to give us, not necessarily at this moment, but the most intensive. Uh, treatment of the day of the Lord. Verses 13 to 15, gird yourselves with sackcloth and lament, O priest. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Come, spend the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, for the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Set apart a fast as holy. Call for a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of Yahweh, your God, and cry out to Yahweh, Alas for the day, for the day of Yahweh is near, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Joel 2, 1-2, Blow a trumpet in Zion and make a loud shout on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near, a day of darkness and thick darkness, a day of clouds and dense gloom. As the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is numerous and might, so there is a numerous and mighty people. There's never been anything like it, nor will there be after it for the years from generation to generation. Joel two eleven and then three fourteen. But Yahweh gives forth his voice before his military force. Surely his camp is very numerous, for mighty is he who does his word. The day of Yahweh is indeed great and very awesome, and who can endure it? Multitudes. Multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of Yahweh is near in the valley of decision. Amos 5.18 to 20 and Obadiah 1.15. Woe to you who are longing for the day of Yahweh, for what purpose will the day of Yahweh be to you? It will be darkness and not light, as when a man flees from a lion and a bear meets him, or he goes home, leans his hand against the wall, and a snake bites him. Will not the day of Yahweh be darkness instead of light? even thick darkness with no brightness in it. For the day of Yahweh draws near on all the nations as you have done it. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. Zephaniah 1, 14 to 18. Near is the great day of Yahweh. Near and coming very quickly. Oh, the sound, the day of Yahweh. 
In it, the mighty man cries out bitterly. A day of fury is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and thick darkness, a day of clouds and dense gloom, a day of trumpet and loud shouting against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against Yahweh and their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the fury of Yahweh. And all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete destruction, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. So that's some samplings. And and while there are many other Old Testament passages that could be cited, I trust that you have a good feel for this subject. The day of Yahweh, or as it will become to be called in the New Testament, the day of the Lord, has been and will be a time in which Yahweh thunders his mighty judgment upon a people or nations, a day, a dark day, but not one without the promise of the dawn of hope. And with this, blessing. Also, if you carefully examine the range of references to the day of Yahweh in the Old Testament, you'll observe, as we have with some of these examples, that there were prior moments of great judgment that have taken on this title, this identity of the day of Yahweh. So there have been the day of Yahweh in history past, but there's a consistent view to the full and final expression of the day of Yahweh, a matter that the New Testament picks up, perhaps most notably by the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Thessalonians, letters to the Thessalonians. So first we see 1 Thessalonians 5, 2-3. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come, just like a thief in the night. While they are saying, peace and safety, Then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman who is pregnant and they will never escape. So you can already see the the very similar, the like language, destruction, sudden, like labor pains seizing a woman. And now, as we've observed, Peter also picks up with the affirmation and development of this articulation of the day of the Lord. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be found out. So the day of Yahweh or the day of the Lord is clearly a period of intense intensive judgment by God upon a people or nations, a judgment that has historical expressions, but always looked forward to a fuller and final day of righteous judgment of the nature of which Peter speaks quite plainly, a judgment of the entire world that not only supersedes the experience of prior expressions of the day of the Lord, but also history's first and only cataclysmic judgment of the entire world, namely in the days of Noah, when the entire world was flooded. Peter speaks of this judgment as one in which the entire creation, the entire creation will be consumed by fire with an intense heat. Now that's a quite an extraordinary judgment and ultimately a judgment that will yield to the institution of the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. A judgment that also will be expressed over many days and as we have and will argue, the day of the Lord begins with the rapture the rapture or the snatching away of Christ's church, which inaugurates the seven-year tribulation in which the world will suffer in ways that it has never before suffered. At this time, it will finish with the blessings, namely the blessings of Christ's return to rule and to reign for a thousand years. 
And then there will be one more final rebellion that's put down, and with it, the final acts of judgment before the ushering in of the new heavens and the new earth, fully and finally ending the day of the Lord. Peter has all of that in view, and he summarizes it very concisely. He has the, the climatic season of redemptive history, and he, he speaks to it very clearly but concisely. He, he states that you need to have an awareness to this. And he'll, we'll see later that Paul also gave no small measure of attention to this, and Peter is aware of that. He's, he's not just treating it concisely and saying that's all there's to be said about it. He says Paul also talks about this rather exhaustively. But Peter does speak to it, and what he does say about this final season and this radical and magnificent and terrifying expression of God's judgment that yields ultimately to his blessing, what he says in these few certain sentences, these few verses, are so weighty and arguably intense. He doesn't have to exhaustively fill it out. When he says the day of the Lord, he's drawing on all that. So it's weighty, it's intense, and by design, I would argue provocative. He expects a response. He's not just saying this is going to happen. So what's next? He's provoking, he's wanting the church to respond. How else can you think of and, and speak about the day of the Lord if not as weighty, intense, and provocative? And I'll again remind you here, Peter wrote as an apostle whose heart was clearly that of a shepherd and whose time was known to be drawing to a close. He knew of the false teachers. We know that. He knew of the mockers. We know that. And he's dutifully putting them in check with truth. But I would argue while having such persons in mind that he's thinking about as he's writing the, the false teachers, he's thinking about the mockers, but more importantly, he knew of the believers and he had them in mind as he wrote. And he was calling upon them to listen and to remember and to be transformed by the weight, intensity, and provocative nature of these glorious truths. And so he reminds them, he reminds them this great and glorious day is coming like a thief. It will no more announce its coming than you will be aware of its presence until it's already arrived. It's, uh, it's here. I didn't know that. I didn't expect that. Such is the nature of a thief. And such is the nature of the imminent and unexpected arrival of the day of the Lord. And he states this with a view to the, the present season of patience. And so such a striking contrast. God's being patient. Days is a thousand years. A thousand years is as a day. It's expressing God's patience. And then it's over. Day of the Lord's come. So he's juxtaposing God's patience to the imminency and unexpected nature of the return of Christ. And with it, the day of the Lord. A patience that Peter says is mocked. Patience, the patience of God that's mocked. And that again brings us to the catalyst of this discussion, the mockers and their mocking. The mockers make light of and dismiss the glory and weight of Christ's sure return, thereby betraying the very nature of their unbelief. It's not simply a wishful dismissing of a, a matter that's beyond their cognitive or experiential grasp. They just don't get it, and so they, they make fun of or they make light of what they just what they don't really understand. It's more than that. It's not just ignorance. This is an outright rejection of Christ's lordship because if the word of God is true, then there's historic precedent for the sovereign God of all creation to call man to a righteous account, an accounting that can and will result in the judgment of the wicked, but also an accounting that can find reprieve. Now, because God will judge, 
That's what they want to dismiss. They don't want Christ to return because when he comes, he will come as a righteous judge. And they don't want that. But what they're missing, and this is so tragic, is this is a, an accounting, a judgment that can find reprieve because the patience of God waits and even desires for men to repent and to submit in faith. That was what we just covered in chapter 3, verse 9. But herein lies the problem for those who persist in their unbelief, who willfully advance down their path of destruction. If Christ is Lord, then they cannot be. And if Christ is Lord, then their servitude to their carnal sin must come to a close. So they conclude, well, the cure is worse than the disease. And because this too is an untenable resolution, they choose to double down in their wicked counsel, their lives of sin, and ultimately patterns of scoffing and mocking. They've gone down the digression of the way of the wicked. They've rejected the profound mystery and kindness of a righteous judge who exercises patience toward them. And that is almost unbelievable, but it's true, so we do believe it. But isn't that amazing that a righteous judge will exercise patience so as to provide reconciliation and forgiveness, giving them the, the merciful, merciful gifts of time? You think about that, the, the Lord of glory who... The day of the Lord's coming, and the way it's coming is terrifying, and yet he's patient, and he gives them time, time to repent. He gives them breath. They wake up, they breathe, they have life, that they would repent, but they refuse. Gives them life, experiences, opportunities, that they might repent. And what's the response? They mock, make little, and dismiss. And consider that for a moment. And realize that the Lord God, who is outside of and Lord of time, chooses to engage with the experience of time so that the passing of days and years are just that, even to him. He's not so disconnected that it has no meaning or value. Rather, while having a different vantage point in relation to their passing, they do pass. And as they pass, they are expressing his patience. And let that soak in for a moment. We worked through that several weeks ago in verse 9, and while it's a, it's a concept we can't fully understand, we need not fail to appreciate what can be grasped and with it the magnificent impact it should have. So again, while God is outside of and Lord of time, he has chosen to engage with time in such a manner that he experiences and appreciates its passing. Otherwise, his patience with the passing of time means nothing. But because he does have patience and he is expressing compassion, then he's engaged with the passing of time in some measure. And there's profound measure of mystery with this, and I recognize that, just as there's, to me, profound measure of mystery with God so personally and intimately engaging any element of his creation. If we're going to struggle with God's engagement with time, I think we also got to struggle with the fact that he engages his creation at all because he is so other. I think sometimes we confuse creator and creation and think, well, yes, of course he engages. That's amazing. And the fact that he holds his creation to an account, that makes sense. The fact that he's patient, that's almost unbelievable. But it's amazingly true because this is the testimony of the scriptures. And so doubly tragic is the mockers and their mocking. And so here he is, he's engaged, he's been patient, and with every passing day and every passing year, his patience is being expressed toward the wicked, toward the unbelieving. And with this, the call for their repentance to be reconciled, to abandon the path that leads to perishing. 
Now, I want to put this in perspective for us, and I'll do this by way of another illustration, and I'm fully aware of the fact that some of you are, are blissfully disconnected from the world of social media. So we, we try to help our folks that are sick or traveling or otherwise, so we'll broadcast on Facebook, and some of you are still like, I don't know. If I'm traveling, I'm lost, but Facebook, it doesn't make sense. I understand that. But the, I think the illustration can still bear itself out. So within the world of social media are these, these faddish seasons. Uh, they quickly secure an extraordinary response. Somebody says, let's do this. And then people all over the world, yeah, let's do this. And then they post things. And it's, it's rather silly for the most part, sometimes enjoyable. But nevertheless, these very rapid uh, seasons of uh, faddish behavior will, will happen here. And here we have one that's called the 10-year challenge. You don't do anything for 10 years, and so it's really just a 10-year reflection, not a challenge. Nevertheless, maybe it's challenging to find a picture from 10 years ago. I don't know. But 10-year challenge, so people post a picture from 10 years ago and a picture from now, and they share it with everybody. They share it with the world, and it, it reflects perhaps a different season in life and something to reflect on. Wow, things have changed so much. Uh, maybe changes in appearance, be it physically, stylistically, changes in where they are in life or location. And so they're just sharing this one chapter to the next, a snapshot of their life. Now, we can follow that even if we don't participate, right? Think about that snapshot 10 years ago, now. In a like manner, consider for a moment that there are many among us who can share pictures and stories from 10 years ago with joy, genuine joy. We can testify to 10 years ago that we've been in Christ for 10 or more years and have experienced God's faithfulness in our lives and growth and grace along the way. But there are some, perhaps many, whose life 10 years ago were quite different. Some differences more obvious than others, but the center of those differences are that you were without Christ without hope, and on the path to perishing in your sins. But somewhere in that 10-year period, while some were mocking the timing of Christ's return, you were experiencing God's patience, God's patience toward you, that you would not perish, but that you would come to repentance. And in the Lord's kindness, you did. And your 10-year reflection is very different you came to salvific faith in Christ, and now you have a sure and eternal inheritance kept for you by the very one who caused you to be born again. And now, if the Lord tarries and your natural life continues, you can participate in a 10-year challenge, and, and it will look so extraordinarily different. So how precious is the very thing that the mockers so foolishly mock. But as Peter makes so very plain here, patience will run its course. It's not an indefinite patience. It will come to a finish. God's patience will stop. And when God's patience does stop, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. He will come in a moment, a moment unplanned, a moment unexpected. And in that period of judgment, you will still hear expressions of mocking in various forms but you'll also hear something else. You'll hear men crying out for the mountains and the rocks to fall on them, to crush them that they might find relief. Revelation 6, 15 to 17, we have the testimony, then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for great for the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? 
And as you well know, the revelation provided to John fills out this picture all the more fully, but Peter is concise in his reminder here, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, suddenly, unexpectedly, at any moment, and when it does, the heavens will pass away with a roar, a term that communicates, uh, it's not unlike our term, roar, when it, it sounds like what it communicates, a tearing of the heavens and the overcoming of the creation by heat, a heat that will destroy the elements. Now, when we hear the, the, the word or the term elements, maybe we naturally think of our training in school, um, where we study the, the periodic table and the elements that constitute the material of our world. And that's actually, obviously not what Peter had in mind. He wasn't thinking, yeah, the periodic table, everything on there is destroyed. But it's not actually far off from what Peter is stating here. As this term was used to express the ordering of things, the ordering of numbers, the ordering of letters, and etc. Therefore, Peter is expressing that the supernatural heat imposed upon the creation by the Creator and acts of judgment will utterly consume and destroy the present ordering of all things. Now, consider our understanding of the elements. And with that, I'm reminded of a more than a 10-year challenge, um, an extra year of de- extra decades ago challenge of my time in high school chemistry. And uh, not that I was particularly skilled in it, but I do have memories of it. And a particular project we were assigned to to promote our understanding of the various elements. Um, and this, uh, we were provided an assignment. We were, we were each assigned an element, and this project uh, included designing a T-shirt, a measure of creativity and an otherwise... Uh, different subject, as it were, to, to do a craft, as it were. But nevertheless, we're to design a t-shirt with an element and then to write on it the applicable information about the element. I think maybe we did like a group photo of the, like the periodic table or most of it or some of it. Didn't have that big of a class. Now, I have no recollection of what element I was assigned, but I do remember that on the back of my t-shirt, below all the necessary information for the assignment I wrote, The heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. So I thought it was amusing um, that these elements that we were giving so much attention to and that constitute the makeup of our material world were going to be incinerated by God. Now, uh, I was a bit of a, a, I guess, silly young man who spoke really beyond what I knew to appreciate. Now, I don't have a, a major problem with the, the experience because I was not mocking. I was not. But what I can say is I did not grasp the weight of that statement. And that's where I would take issue with my younger self. You didn't, you didn't get it. You don't realize the weight of what you just said. Because if I had it, I would have known it was not something we can casually state. It is overwhelming. And it's terrifying. And again, if not inspired by the Spirit of God, it's almost unbelievable that the elements of this natural creation will be utterly consumed with heat, that the judge of all the earth will so radically undo it with a furious heat of judgment. And to what end? Well, this present creation's passing will come, and with it, the eternal state will be ushered in to include the enduring existence of certain things from this present creation, including the souls of men and women, be it in Christ or outside of, and with that, resurrection bodies, but also to include the lake of fire for those who die without Christ. But there will also be something new, the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. 
But in this moment, what will happen? What will happen with the, the consuming of these elements? Well, Peter tells us, doesn't he? He states the earth and its works will be found out. All will be laid bare before the perfect judge. No pretensions or pretending here. All is laid bare. And the lying of the false teacher and the mocking of the mocker will have nowhere to go, nowhere to hide. There's no comfort in distancing oneself from, the ter- from this terrible company. All will be laid bare. So you can't just say, well, I'm not among the mockers. I'm not among the, the false teachers. All will be laid bare. In Christ or otherwise, all will be laid bare to include those who persisted in unbelief with the patient, while the patience of God gave days and years to repent and to believe. Those 10-year challenges won't be cute little things that you post. They will be indictments. Decade after decade you were given. Patience of God being expressed that you might be reconciled and forgiven. And as I stated, Peter's treatment of these matters are not exhaustive in detail, but his words were carefully chosen and clearly have proven to be weighty, intense, and provocative by design. And I want to keep these things in mind as we now work toward a conclusion. And with this, I also want to remind you of something important here. Peter's critique of the mockers mocking included the clear testimony of the scriptures having escaped their notice. And upon advancing in his argument, he calls upon his beloved not to be found with a like fault themselves. These things have escaped their notice. But what does he say? But not let, beloved, don't let this one fact escape your notice. That with the, day, with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. He does not want us to lose sight of, to miss that God's timing is unfolding before us. And as the years pass, he is being patient, but that patience will come to an immediate end at a time of his discretion. And the only clue we have as to when is that it is imminent. So for those of us who are in Christ, Peter is calling us to a clear a sober and provocative mindset, not provoking you with fear. If you're fearful, you don't need, if you're in Christ, there's no grounds to be fearful, but calling you to diligence. There is action to be taken. And what's the nature of it? Well, he's asking us, in view of these things, we're going to look at this next week. What kind of people ought we to be? What kind of people? How do we respond? How do we live and walk? Well, as we're going to clearly see, the answer is that we're people who are found in Christ and peace, spotless and blameless, a people who can and should be utterly confident that like the immovable and flourishing tree planted by streams of water, so we can be immovable and flourishing, or more plainly, and are diligently supplying our faith with moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly love, and agape love, that we will be neither fruitless or useless in the full knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're further assured in chapter two, or chapter one, verses ten to eleven, and doing these things, supplying our faith with these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. So we have a sure and confident hope. It's not to provoke you to fear; it's to provoke you to action, to to have sympathy, compassion, and compelled to declare Christ's excellencies. But for those of you who are not in Christ, this is not simply a matter of, I'll go my way and you go your way. There are two paths and only two paths, the path of the righteous and the path of the wicked. And while Psalm 1 was preciously clear when it states, the wicked 
will not rise in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Peter now affirms this most emphatically. Perishing and destruction are imminent and will come most unexpectedly for those who distort God's word and the carnal mockers and for those who have scorned or shown no regard for the patience of God that has been expressed in the timing of Christ's return. And what, in what ways that been expressed? By a failure to repent and believe that they might be saved, that they might be reconciled. So Peter's language of the day of the Lord coming like a thief is sobering. It is quick, it's without warning, and it will come, and with it will come the conclusion of all men's paths, as it were, which is why it's most encouraging and terrifying that the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you that you're clear that when you spoke and created all these things were good, that when you judge, your judgment is just, that when you redeem, it's out of no value or special merit from the one being redeemed, but wholly because of you and your work. And so how do we think about, how do we understand the nature of such a holy and righteous God? Well, you've made it plain. We can think about you from the vantage point of our generous and gracious Redeemer who on no account of our own merit or standing caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ, the beloved Son that was provided as a, a sacrifice for sin. And such things are precious to us. Such things are necessary to us. And such things are cultivated and matured in as we walk and as we continue to advance in this natural life. But for so many, there's just a, a complete disregard for these things. There's no thought to how do we answer a righteous judge. There's no thought to what is holiness demand. There's no thought to how do I answer for my sins. And yet your patience is extended and extended and extended until it's not. And that's a day in which we so desperately long for. We join John, the conclusion of the revelation of Christ provided to him and to the church's enduring benefit, and we do cry out, come quickly. But we also know when you come quickly, that's the end of the path for the wicked as well. And they will give an account, an accounting that will unfold in terrifyingly magnificent judgment. So Lord, we pray that you would find us faithful, that we would be provoked to a worshipful disposition, that we would be provoked to lives of holiness and faith, and that we would be provoked to longing, longing for your return and, and living shaped by that, but also provoked so as to, to implore, to plead, that we would fill the memories of those who we walk with, with the exhortations, wouldn't you when you take advantage of, wouldn't you listen to, wouldn't you heed the patience of God being expressed? Because a failure to will, uh, there's, no, there's no options in this. It will result in a terrifying and good judgment. So Lord, we pray, find us faithful. First and foremost, may, may we as your beloved walk in a way that's pleasing and encouraging to you and 
and that is encouraged by these truths. They're not designed to, to, to burden us in an unhealthy way or to, to provoke fear. We, we have so much joy that's tied to these things, but also a proper burden. And for those who are not in Christ, we beg that they would hear, heed, and submit. Um, what a foolish way to spend their temporal lives and their words with mocking. Maybe mocking that's more clear by some, and mocking by others just simply by their making light of that which is their only hope and help. So Lord, we pray deliver mockers as you've delivered uh, many mockers probably from amongst us as well. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.